Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The 16th chapter of Matthew, verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Now, up to this point, Jesus had only made vague references to his crucifixion and his resurrection, and they didn't get it. The first reference that he made similar to this one was in Matthew 1240, where he said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the occasion of this statement that I just read to you was during a confrontation with the Pharisees created over the issue of the Sabbath day. Originally, they objected to Christ and his disciples eating some grain as they passed through a field. And it was on the Sabbath, and they plucked some grain, and they rubbed it between their hands to get down to the grain kernels and get rid of the inedibles. It was a very crude way of threshing, just using your hands to thresh. What was left and what was edible, they popped it in their mouth and they ate it. And the Pharisees were standing by and watching them, and they thought rubbing the grain and threshing it with your hand constituted work. And you were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So they took Christ and his disciples to task. They objected to them working on the Sabbath, which in their minds made him an unfit spiritual leader. They said they violated the rules of the Sabbath. And then immediately following this episode, Christ enters one of their synagogues or the area of the synagogue and he heals a man with a withered hand. Again, the Pharisees just happened to be standing by and watching Jesus. And it's not the issue of the healing at this point. It's the issue that he healed on the Sabbath. Those Pharisees were a mess. And the act of healing was work. How dare he? And the scene moves quickly from there to Jesus ministering healing to to the multitudes that were following him. We find that mentioned in Scripture various times as there were crowds gathering around him and he just began to heal. Sometimes it says he healed every one of them. And they objected to him healing. 
Jesus would heal these people and he warned them, now go and don't tell anybody who I am. Then he encounters this demon-possessed man who happened to be blind and mute. And that's not to say that everybody who has maladies, such as blindness or the inability to speak, is demon-possessed. It just means that this demon-possessed man happened to have those symptoms. And Jesus delivered him and restored his eyes and his speech. And guess who was standing around watching that? And the Pharisees, they're getting an eyeful, an earful. And they reached maximum frustration with Jesus at this point. And they accused him of getting his power from Satan. He casts out Satan by the prince of devils. He casts out devils by the prince of devils. And it wasn't long after that, and this is all in that same chapter, some of the teachers of the law and some of the Pharisees approached Jesus and they said to him, uh, show us a sign to prove your authority. Now, if you're following this and processing this mentally, what have you already seen Jesus do? And why do you need any kind of a sign? But these people refuse to accept the evidence that is very clearly placed before them. It's not good enough that he has the power over blindness and limited vocal capabilities, being mute. It's not enough that he can deliver the demon-possessed. It's not enough that he can speak and withered arms and withered limbs stretch forward. They said, well, give us some kind of proof that you have the authority to do this. I think the ability to do it speaks for itself. It's like they're admitting you do it, but where's your authority to do it? And of course, we find that entirely laughable. So no matter what Jesus demonstrated before these people, it was never going to be good enough. And they would forever continue saying, we demand another sign. No sign was adequate because they had already set their mind they weren't going to believe. And it's the same thing basically for us today. We have some people who just are not going to believe. There's enough evidence, but if they've got their mind set that they're not going to believe, no sign is going to be adequate. Every attempt... by people today to point out signs. Every attempt has been an abysmal failure and an embarrassment to Christianity. Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And we live in a day and age that some people have an infatuation with signs. Some of you who are connected with me on Facebook have already seen that I wrote, as a pastor, to those who may have an interest in it, I wrote and I warned people not to get caught up in this, this f flurry of activity around the blood moons. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. It's better you don't know. 
If you have heard about it and you're getting all excited, get unexcited. It makes no difference. There's nothing there that the Bible is giving a clear mandate on. But you go back in the 20th century and you've got several incidents of people trying to calculate the coming of Jesus. And they, a lot of them use the uh, nation of Israel becoming a nation in 1948. And then they try to add years to that and make some kind of a formula out of it. And uh, depending on what length of time they believe a generation is. So you've got uh, Israel becomes a nation and you add a generation to that and these are the last days and they've tried 1977, 1978, 1979, 1980. Pretty soon they ran way beyond a generation. And then they begin to think about the Six-Day War in 1967 and maybe that really is uh, the, the thing we ought to calculate from. So uh, they've been resetting their dates because it's just not happening like they predicted it was going to happen. Every attempt at making signs mean something spiritual have been an embarrassment to Christianity. So Jesus wisely said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. There's not going to be any sign, except the sign of Jonah. And he said, that's all you need. That's all you need. You don't need anything else. The sign of Jonah. And when he said that, he said the sign of Jonah, as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They didn't get it. Twelfth chapter of Matthew. I'll, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Sixteenth chapter of Matthew. He again tells them the sign of Jonah. They don't get it. Neither do we have any record that his disciples said, now, that thing about the sign of Jonah, would you take just a minute and explain that to us? We never hear them mention that again. Evidently, the disciples didn't get it. The Pharisees didn't get it. Nobody got it, but I want you to hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to that later on. But here in the 16th chapter of Matthew, Jesus gets very specific. He says, not only is he going to be given over to the hands of sinners and abused and mistreated, but he's going to be killed. And then he's going to rise again on the third day. Now that's much more specific than the other one. This time there was enough information that people should have been able to see that and go away, and that should have been the talk of the town right there. Did you hear the latest? Do you hear what he's prophesied he's going to do? He says he's going to be killed, and three days later he's going to rise again. There should have been a flurry of interest and activity around that announcement. We see no record, no indication that there was. It just went over their head. Now, we've had modern-day prophets, so-called prophets, self-appointed prophets, that have told their followers to wait for them because they're going to rise again from the dead. I believe William Branham was one of those back in the early to mid-1900s. Had 
quite a devoted, dedicated following. And his followers continued to watch and hold vigil for the resurrection of William Branham. He said he was going to rise from the dead. He's still there. But the point is this, is when somebody makes a claim like that, typically people who believe in it will anticipate that. And Jesus made the claim. I'm going to rise again. Nobody seemed to make a big deal out of it. So this is the second time from the 12th chapter of Matthew, the 16th chapter of Matthew, the second time the Pharisees came to him and said, we still demand a sign. And he said, you're a wicked, you're an adulterous generation. I'm just going to give you, once again, as he repeated, as he had said before, I'm just going to give you the sign of Jonah, and that's going to have to be it. And if that doesn't do it, it can't be done for you. So it's interesting that Christ's prophecy of his own persecution, death, and resurrection is precipitated by that famous interchange that most all of us are familiar with when Jesus and Peter are having this discussion. And Jesus says, Peter, who do people say that I am? What's the rumors on the streets? Well, let me see. I've heard people say you're Elijah. I've heard some people say you're Jeremiah. People have speculated you're one of the prophets come back from the dead. And Jesus said, Peter, who do you say that I am? And this is where Peter famously responds and correctly responds, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. It was a spiritual revelation. In other words, Peter got it. He still didn't get the resurrection yet, but he got Jesus. He, he believed that this man he was following was more than just a man. He began to put his trust in this person being the Messiah. Because when Jesus asked him point blank, and there's no place to hide from the penetrating gaze of Jesus into your heart, and Jesus says, who do you think I am? Well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He got it. A lot of people didn't get that yet. Now, this chapter 16, you have to understand the significance of Peter coming to the point of saying to Jesus, thou art the Christ, the Son of the, of the living God. What a powerful declaration of faith that was. But let's put that up against the background of the chapter. The chapter is one of doubt and skepticism. And Jesus is dealing with these people who are spiritually blind and they just don't get it leading up to this confession of Peter. So let's just walk down this briefly. First, we have the pesky Pharisees and the Sadducees again coming to Jesus and demanding a sign from heaven. And that's whenever he said to them, well, now let me see. You people... You say it will be fair weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, today it's going to be stormy because the sky is red and overcast. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. 
but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. You've learned how to predict the weather, but you can't see the Son of Man performing miracles and understand this is something special. You're still demanding to know where he gets the authority to do this instead of like some of these people who just simply get healed and bow down and begin to worship him. You must be the Son of God. Remember that blind man that got healed and, and his parents uh, were being interviewed by the Pharisees and, you know, uh, what, do you, what do you make of this? And, well, he's old enough, ask him. And they go over them and they're asking him all these theological questions. Well, who is this man and, you know, what authority does he have? And he says, look, I don't know anything. I know one thing. Whereas once I was blind... That man touched me and now I see. That's all I know. It's very simple. They recognize the power of Jesus. But this time, whenever Jesus answers their response and tells them about, you can read the signs of the times, you can read the weather, and you just can't even read the signs that are clearly before you, he says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. Second time they've heard that. Can you see the skepticism there, the blindness, the hard-heartedness? The second thing we see in this chapter is we find the disciples crossing the lake and they realize they forgot to bring bread. And about the time they realize they forgot to bring bread, Jesus whispers to them and says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So they being somewhat spiritually dense are still thinking bread. And they're thinking that Jesus told them the bread of the Pharisees is unfit to eat. And we didn't bring our own Jewish bread. We're in trouble. We're going to starve. And Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about bread anymore. Guys, get on the same plane with me here. When he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, he's talking about the false doctrine, their, their hypocritical approach to, to their religion. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The disciples are struggling. struggling. Do you see the obtuseness? You see the denseness? You see the inability of people to penetrate and see what's clear before them? He's got trouble with the Pharisees. He's got trouble with his own disciples in the boat. And then we have this discourse between Christ and Peter, and Christ realizes he's dealing with Pharisees who don't get it. And he's dealing with his own disciples and don't get it, and he decides to, to ask Peter, well, who do men say that I am? I don't know if Jesus held out a lot of hope for Peter. When he finally hears somebody that gets it, well, thou art the Christ. Yes, somebody is finally starting to break through. They're finally starting to get it. So that's right in 16, 16, right in the middle of this chapter, so to speak, where finally we have this breakthrough into spiritual clarity. And Peter bought into the story of Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, the Son of God. And against the backdrop of these spiritually dense people, how refreshing it was to have somebody who got it. And Jesus said, here's the reason you get it. You get it because flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. You get it because you allowed God to reveal it to you. 
So if there's anybody here today that you're struggling with any aspect of this Christianity, any aspect of this story, this resurrection, the excitement of Christians today as we celebrate the time whenever Jesus rose from the dead and we're excited about it. If you're you're struggling with why people do these things and why would you devote yourself to Christianity and why would you attach yourself to a church and make these commitments, ask God to reveal this to you because flesh and blood will never help you understand. God, help us to understand the significance of it because it's important that you get it. And Jesus said, three things you can expect to happen to me. Number one, I'm going to suffer. Now, we're not talking about on the cross. He did suffer on the cross, and we understand that. And this is not going to be another sermon where we're going to describe the agony of the cross. But when he said, I'm going to suffer... It was talking about that time before the cross, his persecution. He's going to suffer at the hands of three kinds of people. He mentions the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And these three represent three types of people in society. The elders who would have been successful leaders, rich people, who according to Pius Canel suggesting that these three kinds of people persecuting Jesus Christ represent those rich people who have achieved in this life all that they want. The chief priests, the ambitious and covetous ecclesiastics who are seeking their portion in another life. And then, of course, the scribes who are conceited scholars who put their wisdom up against the wisdom of God any day. And these three groups of people are all extremely self-sufficient. They don't need anybody else. It's the self-sufficient person that has the hard time seeing their need for God. It's the person who plans that they can get through their entire life without God. They can make their own money. They can make their own way. They can make their own decisions. They don't need God. They're going to live every day without asking God for any help or any direction or giving any service to him. They don't get it. And as I'm standing here today and telling you that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and the significance of that, not just for Christians, but the significance of that in all the history of all the humans that have ever lived... There's something extremely unique and significant about this that shakes the world. And some people are still at home, asleep in bed, because they don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to them. Why make a big deal out of a story of a man who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? They, they have doubts that he was even a real person. They have doubts this ever happened. And has it changed your life? Has it demanded that you rearrange the priorities because in view of the fact he rose from the dead, that's somebody we ought to be listening to. He would suffer. These people would persecute him relentlessly. And then he said ultimately he would be killed. And how does one reconcile the fact that Jesus said he would be killed with the other place where Jesus said, No man takes my life from me. I lay it down. So was he killed or not? He allowed himself to be killed. He was killed, but he allowed it. He didn't have to allow that. 
the time whenever they were getting ready to stone him, do you remember that story? He just passed through the midst of them. He escaped. It wasn't his time yet. He wasn't ready to lay down his life yet. But whenever he was finally ready to lay it down, then he gave himself to those who killed the Son of God and nailed him to a cross. So that's how we reconcile that. And then the final thing is, he's going to rise on the third day. All of this clearly prophesied. Of course, we have the advantage of reading it as a matter of history. We know he did those things, and we read the prophecies, and we're all excited about it. But would we have done any better had it not already happened and he told us? Would we have dealt with it intellectually? Would we have understood? Would we have tried to dismiss it as metaphorical speech? But nobody was getting it yet. Now, my second point this morning is what was proven by the resurrection? We go back to the sign of Jonah again. The sign of Christ's ministry were more than adequate. But the only sign that Jesus was willing to set forth as the ultimate witness of his authority would be the sign of Jonah. And multitudes of people followed Jesus when he opened blind eyes, deaf ears, restored withered limbs, fed the multitudes with a basket of fish and bread. And he picked up followers every time he did this because people believed. But we don't have any record of people following Jesus because he announced, on the third day I'm going to rise again. But they followed him because of the simpler signs. The big sign, the big prophecy, didn't seem to gather anybody. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't understand what he was saying, or they didn't believe what he was saying, or for some other reason, they just didn't get it. But we moved to the tomb, and a group of women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of Jesus, came to the tomb early that Sunday morning bearing spices for the body. And they were sad, more than sad. They were grieving. And they came to the tomb. I, I, I don't know. You don't know how they were planning to do this. It's just that sometimes women get in their mind they're going to do something, and you don't have to think about how. You just go about and do it. And this was not the group of women that you were going to ask them, well, what are you going to do about moving the stone? The men in those days knew better. Let them go figure it out. And the group of men who stayed back, who didn't want any part of this, because I'm not going to move that stone. You know they had to be humiliated to find out that the women were the ones that were sensitive to what was going on. They were following the leading of the Lord. It was the men that was all dull. They were clueless. And here come the band of women, figuring they're going to anoint the body. And they saw an empty tomb, and they began to weep. Now, their emotions were right there. You know what I mean, women? Men, you know what I mean about the women? Their emotions are right there. So seeing the tomb empty, and the stone moved, they began to weep. And the angels asked the same question that every man would have asked. Why are you crying? And Mary said, they've taken the body. We don't know where it is. 
And the angel replied, why are you seeking the living among the dead? Oh, that's powerful. Perfect words. Perfect response. And they had to think about that for a minute. Put it all together. Why are we seeking the living among the dead? Why are we seeking the living? What does that have to do with somebody stole his body? Why are we... Who's the living? He's not here. He's not been stolen. He's been raised. And the angel says, Do you not remember... When Jesus told you the sign of Jonah, do you not remember that? Now, we didn't read that the women were there in the 12th chapter. Said nothing about them. We did not read that the women were there in the 16th chapter. Go back and read it. It doesn't say anything about the women being there. But the angel said, you were there. So the Bible just didn't take into account everybody who was present when Jesus said that and everybody who heard it. So a lot of people heard it. And a lot of people didn't get it. But the angel said, do you not remember? And they said, oh, now I get it. Yeah, you got an empty tomb. Now I understand what he means when he said he was going to rise on the third day. Well, yeah, what else did you think that meant? So they began to get it. And in another account, you marry the, the, the account of John with the account of Matthew together, and you've got different details in every account. And you've got to try and somehow put all these details together so they make one account. But John focused on something else. Now, Matthew didn't focus on Jesus standing there and, and having this discourse with him, but John picked up on Jesus standing there. And Jesus is standing near, and, and he also asked, Why are you crying? And she said the strangest thing to Jesus. She said, You have carried him away. Tell me where you put him. And Jesus said, Mary. And immediately, when Jesus said, Mary, She saw it was Jesus. No wonder she was excited. And this was the sign of Jonah that Christ promised. Even though Christ announced the most remarkable feat ever recorded in the history of man, they didn't get it. Pharisees didn't get it. Disciples didn't get it. Mary didn't get it. The women didn't get it. Nobody was waiting at the tomb for the resurrection. Nobody was waiting because they didn't get it. In 2012, Nick Walinda announced he was going to walk a high wire across the Niagara Falls, and everybody showed up. And the television cameras came. And everybody wanted to see because a man was going to do what no other man had ever done. And it caught the world's attention. And David Copperfield put on all of these TV specials. 
And the world tuned in to watch because he declared before the world, I'm going to make the Statue of Liberty disappear. I'm going to walk through the Great Wall of China. I'm going to escape from a flaming raft headed over the Niagara Falls. And the world was waiting and watching to see what nobody else had ever done. 64-year-old Diana Nyad announced she was going to swim from Cuba to the United States without the aid of a shark cage. And in 2013... She became the first person to ever accomplish that. And the television cameras were fixed on it. And the beach was teeming with people welcoming her to the shore of the United States for this amazing feat because people heard it and people were interested and people were watching it. And Jesus said, in three days after I die, I'm going to raise from the dead. And nobody was standing there to watch it. They didn't get it. But when the woman, all the women found the tomb empty and the angel reminded them, they got it. And I think we still have that problem going on today. It's still the sign of the resurrection and the fact that people still don't get it. Now, I'll give a pass to the disciples. I'll give a pass to the women. But I'm not giving a pass to you because the tomb is empty and there is irrefutable proof of his resurrection, and there's no excuse not to get it. The only reason not to get it is I just don't care to think about it. I don't want to believe because I don't want God interfering with my life. Because if there is an empty tomb, legitimately, if there is a resurrected Christ, that demands something of you. And some people don't want to pay the price, so they don't want to think about it. But I urge you to get it. So the religious leaders kept hammering Jesus, show us a sign, prove to us, prove to us you're the son of God. And Christ promised them when I arise from the dead, that's all the proof anybody needs. And the resurrection provided these things. It proved these things. Number one, it proved that Christ was divine. The fact that Jesus died on the cross did not prove he was the son of God. Lots of people died. The fact that he rose from the dead proved he was the son of God. The fact that he died on the cross provided for the sacrifice that was necessary to forgive us of all of our iniquities. But the fact that he rose again sealed the deal. The Bible says, being raised from the dead, Christ was proven to be the mighty Son of God with the holy nature of God himself. The next thing that the resurrection proved was his authority. <laughs> they always wanted to know his authority. Okay, when I rise from the dead, you're going to know I have authority. Authority to forgive sin. And that's another thing that chafed the Pharisees is they just couldn't stand him going around forgiving sins. Sometimes they gave the healings a pass but they really didn't like him forgiving sins. Who are you to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. They didn't like it. They thought it was blasphemous. But when he rose from the dead, he proved his authority to do that if he wanted to. He was God. 
The third thing the resurrection proves is his power and his authority and his dominion over the powers of evil. Because at one time they said he casts out devils by the prince of devils. Now that was a terrible accusation to make against Jesus. That was a low blow. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved he was not in cahoots with the devil. He was taking authority over death. He wasn't working with death. He was exercising dominion over death, dominion over hell, dominion over the evil powers. And from the moment of the original rebellion of Adam and Eve until the day of the cross, the devil fought viciously, cunningly, to overthrow the kingdom of God. Satan fought every step of the way to stop the coming Messiah. He fought to break the bloodline from Adam to Christ, and he fought to kill the Christ child before he could ever become an adult, and he fought to kill the Christ before he could ever get to Calvary. Now, here is the fresh twist. You're going to hear only from the pulpit of Westside Assembly of God and no place else that I know of today. You have all heard that Calvary was the big guns for hell. Calvary was the final attempt, the cross, to stop Jesus. That was hell's ace card. They were playing it. They had tried every other way and they failed, but Calvary was the final effort of hell to stop Jesus. And I thought about that and I am coming up with a different conclusion. I don't think Calvary was the final effort of hell to stop Jesus. I think it was the effort of the Jews to stop Jesus. But I've been thinking about this. Satan knows Jesus. He tried to tempt him to get him to stumble and fall. He tried to stop the lineage in the Old Testament and break that lineage so there would be no direct lineage to the Son of God. And he couldn't get him stopped. But I have to believe that hell knew the man he was dealing with was the prince, the king, whom death could not stop. I have to believe that hell knew if he ever made it to the cross and died there, hell's battle was doomed. I don't think hell spent three days rejoicing. We've killed him. He's done. He's over. I think the devil knew better that the prince of life had to be stopped before he got to Calvary. Stone him to death before he gets there. Don't let him reach the cross. But once he reached the cross, I think hell knew it was over because there's one thing that Jesus does that nobody else does. He reigns over death. How many of you here today think it was hard for Jesus to rise from the dead? How many of you think he broke a sweat trying to rise from the dead? That was a given. All he wanted to do was die at the right place at the right time. Rising from the dead was simple. He reaches the cross, and at that point, hell knows it's over. There's nothing else they can do. Because once once he's dead, it's his game. They can't stop anything else. There's nothing else they could do. They could try and get people to stop him from reaching the cross. They could try and cut off the bloodline. But once he's on the cross, game over. Three days. 
Why three days? Does it take three days to fight the devil and overcome this? Three days. Jesus is waiting three days. But he's not worried. He didn't have any problem with resurrection. And the reason it's three days is because earth needed the proof of death and the testimony and the witness. So it wouldn't look like he just swooned, he just fainted. They took him off the cross and he crawled off somewhere and survived. No, they needed three days to seal this up. Three days. So Jesus is waiting three days. He's taking his time. No problem. No big deal. He's dead. Early Sunday morning. Well, that felt good. Because that's what he does. No problem. No effort. The problem was at the cross. The problem was at the suffering. The problem was at those who fought him all the way. But once he made it to the grave, he was home. (laughs) He was home. He was going to do his thing. That was his thing, rising from the dead, exercising power over death, destroying the destroyer. I think the devil knew it was over. All we were waiting for was just the proof. Three days later, he is risen from the dead. He has the power of resurrection. The Pharisees resented Christ because he exercised power over physical corruption, over diseases, over maladies. They were angry he healed people. They were baffled and frustrated when he raised the dead because they didn't know what to do with these people who were walking around and breathing. He conquered death. He proved his authority over death. Nobody has ever done that before. And regardless of the fact that many modern spiritual gurus claim they can do the same thing, nobody's ever done it. And people who question the place of Christianity in this world, where does it belong among the world religions? The politically correct crowd that wants to say that all religions are equal. The politically correct crowd that objects to the Christian declaration of faith that the man we're following is superior to all the prophets and the spiritual leaders. No, that's not politically correct. But we can't be politically correct. We have to be true. We have to be honest. Muhammad's dead. It's over. Buddha's dead. It's over. Confucius is dead. It's over. All these leaders are dead. Our leader is alive. And we don't have to talk about politically correct because somebody says, well, you act like your religion is better than everybody else's. You don't understand. I'm talking about mine's the only one. Our leader is alive. He conquered death. Yours didn't do that. Yours succumbed. Yours lost the battle. He came and taught for a while, found a few followers, laid down and died and turned down to dust. Mine's alive. He's alive. There's no way that belongs on the same shelf in the library with all the other religions in the world. This is the one at the top. This is the only one with a resurrected Savior. The only one. And it's not an exclusive religion. It's a religion for every person. It's a religion for the Buddhists who are following some religion trying to find peace of mind and they can't find it until they finally discover Jesus and they discover the way and the truth and the life. 
It's the, it's the religion for the Muslims who are trying to live a life in accordance with the dictates of the religion. But in, 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 in Middle East countries where they are totally Muslim countries, they are coming to Christ by the scores because they are finding out that this is a religion of hope. It's a religion of life. It's a religion where the, the leader lives. He's, he's, he's eternally alive. They are coming to an understanding that we're not just another religion. We are talking about the salvation of the entire world. Behold the Lamb that takes away the sins of all the world. Do you get it? The sign of the son of Jonah. He'd be persecuted, buried, and raised on the third day. And the question is, before you leave this building today, do you get it? Do you know what that means to you? It means it changes your life. It changes your perspective. It changes your priorities. Because you realize it was personal. He did it for you. And it conquered death and hell for you. Do you get it? Bow your heads.